I love I love being played with by Fincher. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on, one of you nuts has got any guts. Let's put a smile on that face. You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me. Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be. And I have a voice. Ladies and gentlemen. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. Uh, So for the the release of The Girl on the Train this week, uh, we are taking a look at Gone Girl and Manipulation. And basically, I think the reason I did that is just because I saw the trailer and like the first movie that jumped in my head was was Gone Girl. So I thought, what a great excuse to do a David Fincher movie. Uh, so, uh, to do that, I have return guest, uh, Christopher Maynard from Following Films. So, thanks for joining me once again. Thank you for having me once again. <laughs> Sorry about that. I was turning my phone off so that there was a little, uh, <laughs> no- notification right there that I wasn't expecting to happen. So. <laughs> no problem. So, it's like, you know, uh, it used to be like I'd have you on once a year. And what is this, like mm-hmm. three or four times in the last couple months? <laughs> something like that. Either your Rolodex is getting really thin or so- something's wrong here i'm not sure what's going on no no comment okay fair enough (laughs) all right um so uh before we kind of jump into the movie we're talking about of course gone girl manipulation as i mentioned do you have a couple uh movie recommendations for us about manipulation yeah um the first one that popped into my mind is a movie from a couple years ago called compliance so have you seen that um i don't think so like the name rings a bell like i know that i've heard of it but this movie is perfect for your show. I can't believe you haven't covered this one yet. Um, it's basically, it's a, it's a true story, and it's about a girl that works at a fast food restaurant, um, and the manager gets a phone call um, by this person claiming to be a police officer saying that somebody there has stolen money, and essentially it goes down this path of how far the people in this restaurant will go just with somebody on the phone telling them what to do. Um, there's a dateline on it also. If you look it up, I think it was actually at McDonald's where this happened. And, um, it's a insanely disturbing movie, um, just because it actually happened and how willing people are to just, you know, listen to authority figures. It's a really good film. So it's a compliance right. it's 2012, really good movie. Yeah. Now that I'm looking at it on IMDb, like I remember seeing the trailers for this and it, went, and it was one of those kind of smaller movies that I was like, I should see that. And then it just kind of disappeared um, from the cultural landscape, and now that I'm like looking at a couple of screenshots, I was like, "Oh yeah, I really wanted to see that." So I'll have to it's check that out. Thanks for the, def- thanks for the reminder. Yeah, it's it's worth your time. You should definitely check that out. Anybody that hasn't seen it, because it's one of the smaller movies, that was one of my right. favorite movies of the year. It's not one of those ones that I would own necessarily because it's not something warm and cuddly that you want to you know revisit. Well, let me put that again. on again. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> not, not like Gone Girl. It's, it's obviously <laughs> the romance of the year. Yeah, of course. In, in my opinion, but we'll get into that. <laughs> All right, so what's your second recommendation? I I think a real obvious choice when you're thinking about manipulation is probably the Manchurian Candidate, Um, the the original. Yeah. Uh, And you're familiar with the Manchurian Candidate? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Both versions, yes. Yeah, so that's just one of those movies that I think it pretty much defines manipulation, Um, just the idea of brainwashing those kinds of uh, real simple ideas in movies but speak to bigger truths about our society. It's a fun psychological thriller so if for some reason you listen to a movie podcast and you haven't seen the Manchurian candidate that's <laughs> definitely one to do yourself a favor on and check out i think you can probably see it on netflix 
Yeah. Nice. All right. Cool. All right. So thanks for those recommendations. Uh, we'll take a little break. I'll talk about manipulation and then bring Chris back to talk about Gone Girl. Greetings, podcast listeners. My name is Peter, the host of Hydrate Level 4. On my show, I invite guests to come on and we review movies from our childhood and see if they still hold up. I've reviewed movies such as Mrs. Doubtfire, True Romance, Real Genius, The Mighty Ducks Trilogy, and even serious movies like A Time to Kill. We have a lot of fun and reflect back on the year and talk about even the music and other movies that came out around the time of that particular movie's release. So find me weekly at followingfilms.com on the Following Films Podcast Network. All right, so it's time for the psychological section. So we are here to talk about manipulations, specifically psychological manipulation. So basically all that is is a type of social influence where you're trying to change the behavior or the percept or the perception of others through abusive, deceptive, or underhanded tactics. So there's lots of ways to change people's minds about things, but the really important part here with manipulation is all these negative things, the abuse, the deception, the underhandedness, right? So by advancing the interests of the manipulator, uh, usually at other people's expense, these methods are exploitative, abusive, devious, and deceptive. Now, as I mentioned, social influence is not automatically negative. So doctors will try to convince their patients to change unhealthy habits. This is social influence, but it's not manipulation unless you're saying like, unless you're lying to them and saying, if you don't change this, you're going to die tomorrow, then that would be manipulation. Maybe not the best way to get change right away, but uh, there are other ways to influence people socially. So according to George K. Simon, who is an author in the psychological field, he says successful psychological manipulation involves three requirements. One, you conceal the aggressive intentions and behaviors, because if you're upfront about the fact that you're manipulating people, it's not going to work. Two, you know the psychological vulnerabilities of the victim to determine which tactics are likely to be the most effective. And I think in this movie specifically, we do see one character who really knows kind of her prey really, really well. And three, having a sufficient level of ruthlessness to have no qualms about causing harm to the victim if necessary. So you have to be, you have to be kind of, sounds like a little disturbed in order to be a, a great manipulator. You have to, if it doesn't work, you have to be willing to cause even physical harm sometimes. So manipulation is likely to be accomplished through covert aggressive means. So how do the manipulators actually control their victims? Um, so one person in the field, Breaker, identified a bunch of a bunch of ways that they control their victims. Positive reinforcement, so giving praise, um, giving the superficial sympathy, like crocodile tears, apologizing all the times, giving money or gifts, attention, um, forced laughs or smiles, and public recognition. Second, negative reinforcement. So that's just removing one from a negative situation as a reward. Like, you won't have to do this if you allow me to do this. And then there's intermittent or partial reinforcement. So the great thing about intermittent uh, reinforcement is this is actually what casinos use, right? Uh, if you sit down at a slot machine, there's no, there's no rule that says every 30 pulls, I'm going to get a jackpot right? You never know when it's going to show up, which keeps you coming back. So in this case, you never know when the positive reinforcement is going to show up. So you keep hoping and you keep showing up. Next, punishment. This can include yelling, uh, cold shoulder, intimidation, emotional blackmail, guilt trips, crying, playing the victim, any of these things. And then finally, something called traumatic one trial learning. 
right? So the idea of learning is that it's a, a repeated process. So you don't want to provide these punishments during learning right away because then the person is going to be traumatized and not want to learn. So these are things like verbal abuse, explosive anger, um, any behavior that establishes superiority in a situation. And even one incident of this kind of behavior can train victims to avoid upsetting the manipulator. So even if I know they're manipulating me, I'm going to back away from this because I never know when they're going to yell at me or hit me or do terrible things. Now, there's other manipulative techniques um, that have been put forth by an author named Simon. So lying, uh, lying by omission, denial, uh, rationalization. So this is an excuse made by the manipulator for inappropriate uh, behavior. Uh, minimization, saying it's kind of not as bad as, as you're saying it is. Selective attention, um, diversion, evasion. A covert intimidation. Um, so this is the idea of like veiled threats. Uh, guilt trips, we already mentioned. Um, shaming. Manipulators tend to use sarcasm and put downs to increase fear and self-doubt in the victim. Uh, also playing the victim. It's the total switch, right? Like you're manipulating someone. They are the victim and you're going to you're going to play the victim and be like, oh, everything you do, uh, everything you do is affecting me. Uh, there's also vilifying the victim. Um, so this is a really powerful means of putting the victim on the defensive while masking your own aggressive intent. Um, so if you falsely accuse the victim of being an abuser, it puts some distance between them calling you an abuser because it just feels like a reaction. Seduction, these are things like charm, praise, and flattery, and flattery being overly supportive, uh, which lowers the person's defenses and gives trust and loyalty to the manipulator. Also, projecting the blame. You can blame others. It doesn't have to be the person who you're victimizing, but it can just be anyone. Also, feigning innocence, feigning confusion, uh, being angry, and something called the bandwagon effect. So manipulators tend to comfort the victim into submission by claiming that lots of people have already done something and the victim should as well. So these are phrases like, you know, everyone does this. Uh, many people in your situation have done this. Um, so this this usually is used in these peer pressure situations. So basically what manipulator, manipulators are doing are they're exploiting vulnerabilities. And there's a lot of them that they're exploit, exploiting. The, the kind of desire to please, which we all have, um, the addiction to earning approval and acceptance of others, uh, something called emotophobia, emot which is a fear of negative emotion. A lot of people don't like to express anger. Um, the, the inability to say no, um, the inability to provide strong boundaries, low self-reliance, other vulnerabilities they'll exploit are uh, people who are naive, people who are overly conscientious, people who have low self-confidence, people who over-intellectualize. So people will try really hard to understand and believe that the, that the manipulator has you know, an actual reason to be hurtful, like something that makes sense, uh, and then emotional dependency. Manipulators also generally take a lot of time to kind of figure out the characteristics and the vulnerabilities of their victim. They don't like walk into a relationship starting to manipulate people. And that's the same thing in this movie. There's a lot of time that passes before the manipulation starts. So things they look for are uh, people who are overly dependent, people who are immature, people who are impressionable, uh, people who are overly trusting, uh, lonely, and even people are narcissistic because one of the things we mentioned, remember, is flattery. And no one is more prone to falling for unmerited flattery than a narcissistic person. People who are also impulsive make snap decisions. Um, people who are altruistic, like kind of the opposite of, of the manipulator, like too honest, too fair. Um, people who are materialistic, uh, people who are greedy, 
people are masochistic and specifically the elderly. Um, elderly people tend to become fatigued and less capable of multitasking. So when they're hearing kind of a sales pitch, which is kind of what manipulation is, they're less likely to consider that it could be a con or a lie. So they're pr- they're much more prone to giving money to someone with, with a hard luck story, which leads to elder abuse, especially um, financial abuse. So what are the motivations of, manipulate- of manipulators? So there's a small list here, but there's there's many more that you could probably fill in yourself. One, the need to advance their own purposes and per- and personal gain at any cost to others. Uh, a need to attain feels of power and superiority in relationships. Um, a want and need to feel in control. A desire to gain power over others in order to raise their own self-esteem. Uh, sometimes it's just boredom. Growing tired of their surroundings, so they see it more as a game than they do of hurting others. And then there's kind of the covert agenda, which could be criminal or otherwise. This includes financial manipulation, so often seen, of course, in the elderly or other unprotected wealthy individuals. So one thing that comes up a lot with manipulators is the idea of psychopathy. Um, We've all heard the term psychopath. Um, And one of the main factors in psychopathy is being manipulative. It's actually the first factor in a test called the psychopathy checklist or the PCL. Um, Also, it shows up in antisocial, borderline, and narcissistic personality disorders, Um, also a little bit in in histrionic personality disorders, Uh, and it's sometimes referred to as Machiavellianism. So this is a term that some social and personality psychologists have used to describe a person's tendency to be unemotional, and then they can detach themselves from conventional morality, and then they're able to deceive and manipulate others. Okay, so for our article today, we're looking at uh, an article that talked about psychopathic personality features, uh, which of course involves manipulation, and something called malingering symptoms of major mental illness. So malingering is essentially lying with a purpose. Um, in the psychological field, if someone is malingering, that means they're what's called faking bad or faking having an illness when they really don't in order to get uh, treatment, in order to get medications, uh, in order to get a lighter sentence, whatever that may be. So this study was part of a bigger research project that was looking to examine the validity and utility of measures of psychopathy, uh, especially in forensic contexts, which is in uh, jails and prisons. Um, The participants were 116 English-speaking male inmates at a prison in Florida. So unfortunately, there's not many studies on psychopathy with female participants because in general, it's much more likely for men to be uh, psychopathic. So this total sample had um, kind of four subgroups of offenders. Two groups were recruited from the general population who had been evaluated by mental health professionals once they got in and were found to be free of any major mental, mental disorders. So none of them were taking psychotropic medications or receiving mental health services. So those were 60 inmates, and they were randomly assigned to one of two conditions. One of these groups um, took a clinical and a malingering measure, so a measure of mental health and a measure of whether they were lying or not, and they were labeled as general population non-malingerers. So the second of these groups was instructed to malinger on the clinical and malingering measures and was labeled general population malinger. So they were told, lie about your mental health. The rest of the inmates uh, were recruited from something called the crisis stabilization unit, which was a mental health unit within the prison. Two groups were recruited from this unit. The first, called clinical non-malingerers, consisted of 30 men admitted to the mental health unit who were judged by the treatment staff to be genuinely mentally ill 
and not exaggerating or faking symptoms. So the last group of 26 men um, were also in that CSU um, who were diagnosed by the clinical staff as exaggerating or feigning symptoms of mental illness. So this group was clinical malingerers. So then what they did is they provided psychiatrists with a form that listed eight strategies that people may use in order to feign mental illness so they would be prepared for it. This list represented the eight specific strategies that underline the the primary scales of this malingering scale. So this is like endorsement of rare symptoms, unusual symptom combinations, inconsistency in observed versus endorsed symptoms, and so on and so on. So for each of these patients, a psychiatrist was asked to indicate on the form the strategies detected during the assessment. The form also provided a place for the psychiatrist to write in any other clinical manifestations of exaggeration um, not captured by these eight strategies. So they gave them a bunch of measures. So as we mentioned, they gave them a measure of psychopathy, a measure of uh, major mental disorder. So this was something called the personality assessment inventory, and then an assessment of malingering. Um, so for the, the final group, the group that was supposed to malinger, they were told that the information would be shared with the staff. So this instruction was an effort to reinstate the motivation to malinger, who now having gained admission to the CSU might actually get treatment, um, and then that would motivate them to feign illness more. So they were instructed to answer the questions in such a way as to make a trained psychologist think you were truly experiencing symptoms of a major mental illness while preventing that psychologist from detecting that you were faking. In all groups, the person was paid $5 for being in the study, and as an incentive to try to malinger without being detected, participants in that final group were advised that a bonus of $50 would be paid to the person who was most successful at presenting himself as mentally ill without being detected as faking. All right, um, so... Basically, what they found here is that the results don't support the proposition that people with substantial psychopathic features are likely to be more effective at feigning symptoms of mental illness than those who do not have those personality traits. So these results basically question the rationale of of including something like antisocial personality disorder as a risk factor for malingering as it is in the DSM. So the clinical implications of this uh, correlation not being true are actually pretty significant. So the determination of, like, if you say someone is malingering, it has a lot of huge consequences for uh, for people undergoing forensic evaluations. Like, basically, once they're malingering, you can't trust anything they say, and that and that goes into court as well. So that can affect kind of everything. But is in it is interesting that you would think that someone with uh, these psychopathic traits would be really good at uh, at feigning at feigning these symptoms. But we actually find that there's like kind of no difference. Uh, between the two groups. One hypothesis as to why people with higher levels of psychopathy may not not have been as effective as we thought in a research context is that there's not a lot of clinical judgment involved in classifying people as malingering versus not. So the measures used to detect this malingering all employ these indices with recommended decision-making cutoffs. So they make the decisions for you, which is a really great thing about assessment, but you're not going to have that outside of a research context. So we may see that um, people with psychopathic tendencies actually are really good at malingering uh, against normal people or against professionals that don't have these kind of cutoff scores in mind and aren't kind of directed in that way. So that is always the difficult thing between research and real life. All right. So that's it for the psychology section. Uh, We'll take a little break and then come back with Chris and talk about Gone Girl. Most people know Stanley Kubrick is one of the greatest filmmakers of our time. But did you know that later in his career, he was so embarrassed by his first and lowest rated film, Fear and Desire, that he tried to stop it from being seen by the public? Hi, I'm Nate Jones. And I'm Austin Gold. 
and together we co-host the Best and Worst of the Best podcast, a show where we pit a great director's highest and lowest rated films on IMDb against each other to see what exactly went right and what went oh Oh, so wrong. We've already covered directors like Stanley Kubrick, the Coen brothers, Quentin Tarantino, Steven Spielberg, and many more. Check us out at bwbpod.com and let us know what great director you think had the biggest blunder. All right, so we're back to actually talk about the movie now. So uh, we're talking about Gone Girl with Chris here, and this is one of those movies that, to me, uh, it, it was surprising to me in a lot of ways. Uh, this I know this book got a lot of press when it first came out, and everyone kind of freaked out about it and sold you know millions and millions of copies, and I had zero interest in it. You know, it sounded like you know, kind of pulpy, you know, kind of nonsense, not something I would watch and I, or I would read. And the only reason I I even ended up seeing it was because of the director, because David Fincher directed it. And I just think like, not he's not necessarily a director who can do no wrong, but he's pretty damn close. He's one of my favorites. So I kind of walked in on opening day, kind of blind to what the story was about and was stunned by it. And I just felt like, it was I heard uh there was some celebrity who talked about it and said it's like it's like a lifetime movie, but made by the best possible people, made by the best director, the best actors, the best screenwriters, and it just goes kind of full throttle until the end. And I thought that was a really good description of the experience of it. So it was in a movie I expected to love uh in 2014, but I definitely did, and it's one that I've rewatched like three or four times at this point. What was your kind of initial reaction when you first saw Gone Girl? I think it was similar to yours, and I think your assessment of it is is correct, um, that this is pulpy. Um, this mm-hmm. is trash. It's garbage. It's a lifetime movie. Um, but it's executed on such a high level that it's entertaining and fun. Um, if you look back at Hitchcock's stuff, a lot of mm-hmm. his films are really pulpy and trashy and um, regarded much higher in retrospect than they actually were at the time. Um, people started right. looking back at his films later and kind of appreciating them after the fact, you know, at the time they were dismissed a lot of them. And I think that that's something that's true with Gone Girl, that it's just a fun movie and there's nothing wrong with that. You can make a fun, empty movie. That's, you know, just, I don't know. It's just entertaining and, and that's okay. But yeah, um, the idea that it's pulpy and that's somehow a bad thing. It's, you know, if you, if you make it well and it's entertaining, right. then that's fine. Yeah. I mean, it actually gave me a lot more respect for kind of everybody involved in this movie. Cause I think it would have been, not easy, but I'm sure it would have been tempting. You know, I think a lot of directors, a lot of actors like these days kind of think about their legacy and like, how are people going to look back at this? Whereas mm-hmm. I think some older movies, it was kind of like, I'm just, this is, this is work. This is a job. I'm, I'm going to do this and I'm going to get through it where, so it would have been simple to kind of like, well, let's make this, like we'll use the, the source material, but let's make it serious. Let's make it, you know, raw and real. And I love that everyone involved, I think knew like, oh no, this is over the top. This is crazy. Mm-hmm. Like, like we said, this is pulp. So let's just go for it instead of like, let's try, let's try to tone things down and smooth out the rough edges and make it a, you know, a, a classy Oscar nominated movie. Like, no, let's just go. Let's do it. And I love that everybody seemed to agree on that. Everyone who was involved in the movie. Well, I feel like Fincher almost, I know that this can't possibly be the case. So he just, I'm assuming he just does what he wants to do for whatever he's attracted to do for whatever reason. Yeah. But it really feels like he does films that have no right to be as good as they are. 
Um, mm. A movie about Facebook has no right to be as good as the social network is. Yeah. Um, a, a remake of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo has no right to be as good as it is. Um, he, he constantly does films like this where it's just something that rises above the material. And I think that it's just the stuff that he's attracted to is kind of trashy, but he right. makes it really well. How do you think he got that kind of cachet? Like, do you think it's just like the success of Fight Club that kind so of Fight Club was a bomb, though? Yeah, I guess that really only did well in retrospect. Like, it became this super cult classic. So I'm wondering, like, at what point does he become this director who gets to kind of do whatever he wants? Because if you look, if you look at his career, I mean, Alien Three was a, a nightmare for him and a nightmare for everyone involved. And then mm -hmm. you have Seven that I feel like uh, looking that was a back, huge hit. that was a big hit. And then you have The Game, which was not. Mm -hmm. And then Fight Club, which you mentioned was not Panic Room, was not a huge hit. Zodiac is very well thought of, but again, not a big money maker. And basically, I think the first thing that probably made a bunch of money after Seven was probably the Social Network. So I wonder, like, yeah. I always wonder who gets who gets that blank check in Hollywood, you know, to kind of do whatever. And he seems to have slid into that role somehow, and I'm just not clear why that happened. I don't, I don't know that he has a blank check in that in that sense. Um, because I, I don't know how much his movies cost. I, I've actually never really looked into it, but I don't think they're overly expensive. They have, have really high production values, and they look like they could be. That's a good but point. I'd be really shocked. I would be shocked if they were spending you know 150 million dollars on these movies. Yeah, that's um, a good point. I just looked up uh, like the Social Network, for instance. That budget was 50 million, like, which is like in today's dollars in Hollywood is pocket change. Like yeah, that's and it, nothing. It's it's the prestige of working with a director that's that well respected that you can say at the end of the day it gives you some degree of street credit as a studio. Right. That not everything you're doing has, you know, a guy with a giant S on his shirt and a cape. That <laughs> there's you know, you're trying to do some quality filmmaking and every once in a while you might get something out of him that does really hit with the public. And when it hits, right. it hits in a pretty big way. Yeah. And, you know, Gone Girl cost about 60 million. And this movie, I mean, it's one of the first things I noticed, and we'll just kind of jump into his direction because that's kind of where we're already at. Mm -hmm. I, the first thing I noticed as I'm rewatching it, like I'm like 15 minutes into it and I'm like, God damn, this is a good looking movie. Yeah. Like it's there's I mean, even movies you look at in 2016, like there are moments where you're like, well, that looks cheap. That looks rushed. And there's not a single frame in this film where you're like, uh, that's not great. Like, I don't really like the way that looks like it's just like it's very pleasing to the eye in every moment. And you don't actually see that many movies like that. And it, I was just struck by that. And I, had, I hadn't watched it in about a year. So I was just like kind of shocked by how good it looks. Sometimes you go back to movies that you think like, oh, I really like that. that. That was a really good looking movie. And then you're like, well, it hasn't aged that well. You know, like it's been a couple of years. And it doesn't look that great. But that is not the case here. Sometimes that's the test of how how not how good a movie is but kind of the quality of certain aspects of the movies you can go back and watch it and you know what's coming so you can look a little closer at the actual film and and gone girl like more than holds up i think i think i in a lot of ways i appreciate it more on rewatch now what is it about this movie that makes it so rewatchable because as we both kind of touched on there's i mean it's a fun movie um mm -hmm. it has a you know the twist though which there is yes. a twist here um, <laughs> a little bit yeah a little bit of a twist and so <laughs> Um, there's not something where it's speaking to real deeper truths about, you know, the, you know, mankind. And it's something that it's very surface level in a lot of ways, but it's 
really highly rewatchable. What is yeah. it about the film? What is it about the direction here that makes this so engaging? Well, I think there's a couple things. For me, one part of it is performance. I think you get even more uh, of a deeper level of performance from both Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike when you know the truth. Mm. You know what's going on, like they, because there's there's a lot of there's a lot of interactions not only between them but between them and the world around them that you're not sure what you think of it. You're not sure who you believe, especially in the beginning of the film. And now there's like this kind of subtextual level to that performance, which makes it really enjoyable. And the other half is I feel like this is uh, this is two movies in one. It is a really good procedural in the first half and mm -hmm. then just an insane Lifetime movie in the second <laughs> half. But I think they're both so well made that like even as as halves of movies, like you can watch them and be really entertained and really engaged. And I think uh, Fincher is one of the few directors who could have a his hand at the reins at both of these kinds of movies and really make them work. Yeah, it's um, it's strange because, you know, this a lot of films that are like this that have this big twist in the middle of it or, you know, I, I kind of think of movies like The Usual Suspects. Hmm. Where that's something that on rewatch the first time you can kind of see it and then you know where it's heading and it's interesting that second time. But then every time after that, it's diminishing returns. Sure. And it feels like here, this is something that actually rewards the revisits that you do pick up on nuance and layers of it that you maybe didn't see the first time, second time, third time. Um, and it's that's just how intricately um, and I, I, it's not constructed in the same way that like a Wes Anderson movie is where it's that, that level of detail that's just almost obnoxious. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> there, it, and it doesn't necessarily work for everybody. I, I kind of appreciate it and have fun with those because I, I there's not a lot of people doing that kind of work. Um, but I can understand why it put, turns a lot of people off. But with Fincher, it's not something that necessarily calls attention to itself. Um, right. I think his, his subject matter is often very, um, I don't know, something that it's kind of details magazine level of machismo to some degree. If you think <laughs> of things like fight club and, you know, even the sort of alcoholism, the way that it's dealt with in Zodiac, there's this level of, I don't know, manhood that he's always displaying. Mm -hmm. um, and, but there's something that's always in the way that he constructs them. It's so interesting and so detailed and so rich that it's just, I really can go back and rewatch even you know, he said some of them are misses. Even his biggest miss is something that I think is highly rewatchable. And uh, mm -hmm. Alien 3, I can't necessarily blame on him. I don't think he had control at that point. There's, there's a lot of variables going on in that movie, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah, and I think this is – Gone Girl is a prime example of a movie with a twist that's not about the twist. When you make a movie about the twist, when you're M. Night Shyamalan – I mean, let's be real. Sure. Like that moment – if the twist works in that moment – Audiences are going to be wowed and everyone's going to talk about it. And the film, if it's if it's good and has a good twist, will make a shitload of money. But like if you if you rewatch it and if it's just about the twist, then it's not interesting. But I think this movie is about the relationship between these two main characters. There's a twist exactly. in there, but that's not the point. The point is to it, it actually there were moments where it strangely reminded me of the same setup as Blue Valentine, where you see the destruction of a relationship and the beginning, like passionate love moments of a relationship kind of back to back. Like you mm -hmm. see those scenes, you know, the the sugar storm as she's talking about how awful he is like in a voiceover. And I think it's it's this really great, interesting dichotomy that really shows an entire relationship in in a really quick and really efficient 
efficient way. So if the movie was about the twist, it's not going to work. But because it's about these two people and about how they interact, I think it makes it a lot more interesting. I completely agree that. Um, and honestly, there's there's I was talking about how pulpy it is and um, the idea it's not speaking to deeper truths about it. But I think there is a one idea about this film that's um it's not subtly conveyed but i think that it's <laughs> uh, it's it's there's a big lesson that you can learn about your relationships here um for me the big takeaway from this film is that um we don't want honesty in our relationships right um, we claim to want it but <laughs> you we don't actually really don't. want to know <laughs> we, we don't and we like yeah. we, we we become better people when we're with somebody that inspires us Right. Um, when you, there's this idea of who you are when you're left to your own devices and that person is probably not you acting at your fullest potential. Right. And when you find somebody that makes you be somebody that's better, I think that's something that's actually really beautiful. And the way they examine that here is in an absurd, <laughs> a little twisted. Way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I honestly think that there is a, a, a deeply romantic core to this center of this movie where these two psychopaths are, empowered by each other and they do become their better selves when they're with each other yeah when we were first talking about doing this episode we were kind of joking about like this is this is our romantic movie me and chris this is but as i was watching it like it's really interesting there's this whole scene of her talking about being the cool girl and being that for him and how she crafted him into being a better person and how yeah. angry she is about that. But if you twist that the other way if you put that through a romantic lens there's some sweetness there there's that, that idea that I'm willing to to change who I am for this person. I'm willing to be the person who who gives them the drive to do great things. I think if you if you put it in that lens, it is actually really sweet. But of course, we're looking at it from these two horrible manipulators. <laughs> like, so of course, everything is so skewed. But it is really interesting to kind of look at romance from the angle of these people rather than your stereotypical young couple. But isn't that the way that satire should work? That it should be exaggerated, that it should yes. be on the, doc the Doctor Strange love level. Right. Um, so the deeper truths come out that way. Um, you know, if you, when you have straightforward anti war films, you know, you end up with uh, preachy horseshit like Apocalypse Now, um, <laughs> which, which is fine. I, I Put get that it. on the poster. <laughs> but preachy horseshit. Yeah. <laughs> but, and it's, it's a great film. Don't get me wrong, but it's at the, it's, by our 2.75. It's, it's not thinking, subtle. I, I <laughs> get it, man. But, you know, <laughs> Wrap like, it up. medicine go down a little bit smoother, you know? Yeah. And I think that's what he's doing here to some degree, even if it wasn't necessarily the intention of the film. I do. I honestly think that is kind of the deeper message of the movie. And it's something that, I don't know, I think uh, most of us could probably do to hear that lesson. Cause it's something that we don't actually talk about with each other. We don't talk about this with our spouses that, we don't you know, necessarily want the straightforward versions of each other that we do want to be a better person. And we do not want to be ourselves. We want to be the person that they see when they see us. We want to right. try to emulate that thing that they see inside of us because there's potential that we don't see in ourselves that might not even be there um, right. that they see. And I, I think that's kind of a beautiful thing. Yeah. Gone Girl, the date movie of 2014. Oh, sure. I'd rather watch that than Broken Circle Breakdown. Uh yeah, let's let's just move on from that. Um, <laughs> so, you did, so you saw that one? No comment. Um, yes, <laughs> not no. Uh, so earlier we were talking about the idea of rewatching this movie and like getting this extra layer, and I think no shot in the movie, no moment in the movie encapsulates that better than the kind of opening and closing shots of this movie, where you have 
you have Nick kind of look, looking down on her like uh, at the back of her head and having this kind of internal <laughs> monologue about wanting to crack her skull open and find out what sure. she's thinking, right? And I remember when I first saw it, I was like, it, it's such an interesting, like kind of terrifying way to start the movie because I think it puts you in a lot of ways like on her side at the beginning of the movie because it's a really weird, really fucked up thing to say. Yeah. And you're like, what is wrong with this guy? So you're immediately questioning him. But as, of course, the events of the movie unfold, I think you you get closer to understanding why he's saying the things that she that he's saying about her. So when you hear that line again at the end of the film, it takes on this totally different subtext. So then when you watch it again, I think you feel like at least I did as if you were like really torn between the emotions that you feel like, okay, I'm rewatching this movie again, like I'm starting over and hearing that line, it's still shocking. But then you think about what's going to happen and mm -hmm. it, and it puts you in this very odd uh, kind of pulled in different directions state of mind. Well, it, um, and I think that they, it would be very easy for them to make that line have sympathy at the end. Mm -hmm. It just, instead it has a question mark now. When it was in the beginning of the film, there was a definitive reaction you have that this is not a good man. This is somebody who's done something terrible. He's going to do something terrible. And it's leading you down that path. And then in the end, um, there, there's this question of, at least for me, of whether or not he was actually, how abusive was he? Yeah. Um, how far did that moment go at the bottom of the stairs? Um you don't you don't have reliable narrators in either one of them. Yeah, I love so that you, you never know really if know. that happened at all. Like yeah, you, you exactly. don't like <laughs> or if even if or yelled at her, like you have no because like of course they show it <laughs> happening, but they show a lot of things happening in this movie that you're not sure, okay, is this really happening or is this Amy's story? Is this Nick's story? Like is it somewhere in between? I, I think that's kind of the brilliant thing here is that we are left to our own imagination in that sense. And I think that you can kind of project yourself into that moment in the end. And it's maybe a litmus test of who you are and to what you see as the ending there. And yeah. I really appreciate that about that, that it, he gives us, even though it's that pulpy that at the very least there is that question mark at the end, there's this idea of allowing us to paint in the ending ourselves, which is, you know, that, that shows confidence in the audience and audiences appreciate that actually. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. And I think there's like two scenes that jump to mind that are just like in a movie full, like we talked about, of a really good looking movie that's shot really well. The kind mm -hmm. of sugar storm uh, in the alleyway, I think it like just on its own is just like one of the most beautiful things of that year I saw on screen. Like throw out all the story you want, throw out all the past and the present and the future stuff. Like that moment, like you can see why she's why she's wooed by that moment. You should see. But do you think that's her memory of it, though? I, do you no, think that's and, reality? And, and I think that's why it's so beautiful, is, is yeah. she's looking back at the good moments. Like, mm -hmm. no, I don't think anything in the world has ever looked that good. Like, <laughs> like that, nope. Like, it's, it's like perfection. It's like, it's like something in a fairy tale. It's yeah. fantastic. And then the choreography of the sex scene between her and Neil Patrick Harris's character is just so beautiful and terrifying and the way it's edited and cut together. And granted, that's not necessarily Fitcher's direction. That's the editor he probably trusts. But I, I feel like he's one of those directors who has a hand in everything. And I just it's yeah. it's something straight out of a horror movie. Like it's terrifying. Well, the thing that's most terrifying about that, I mean, there's the gore. Um, there's yeah. a shocking moment of it. It's the the extra movement that she has at the end where mm. she's doing this while she's still having sex with him, yep. which is just 
insanely disturbing. And that yes. extra little thrust at the end is so <laughs> yeah. terrible. And, um, and that's so, I think, ballsy for her to allow herself to look that way in that moment. Cause it's such a terrible, terrible scene. And yeah. I, one of my favorite scenes in the film, honestly, cause it's so disturbing. Yeah. And we rarely, we rarely see a woman in film doing something like that, like doing oh, something that extra disturbing. No. And we never see a woman that is um, this in control yeah. of a movie like this, that she is absolutely the one that is, moving all of these pieces. She is always the yep. smartest person in the room. She is always the one that's in control of the situation. Um, and that idea of that question mark that you were talking about before with breaking her head open, cracking her skull open so she can see, he can see what's in there. As an audience member, you're kind of left with the same opinion of her. We're yeah. like, yeah, we need to get inside. What is going out. on? What is going on in there? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love that even in the the first like sexual scene they show between her and Nick, she's the one in control. He's going down on her. Yep. Like, of which course. is something like in Hollywood movies, like one seeing a man go down on a woman, like you don't see that very often, let alone have this character be completely in control, you know, for 99% of this film. Oh, yeah. No, I think even in the moments that she's not in control of it, um, there's it's perceived control. I honestly think that yeah. she's allowing someone to have um, sort of the appearance of knowing what they're doing and they're yep. just moving down the path that she wants them to go. Yeah. Um, and, and to some degree for their betterment, really. Yeah. Um, with, with, the, with the exception of Neil Patrick Harris, who, you know, I mean, he is kind of a creep. I'm not sure that he deserved to die necessarily. Um, but yeah, he, he's definitely, um, he's not the, a winner. It's not, no, <laughs> not at all. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the acting. So, um, I think Rosamund Pike is one of those actresses like who I had seen in other things and I recognized her when I saw the trailers for this movie, but she's not, she wasn't like a known commodity. Like she wasn't like, Oh, I'm going to see this because she's in it. I really like her. I think she's fantastic. I was just like, okay. And she like wowed me is not a strong enough term. Like I thought she should have been nominated for an Oscar for this performance. Like I think it is, I don't think it can be done better by anyone else. And I think it holds up on rewatch. Like she gets for some, somehow as I rewatch this, she gets more terrifying than even the first time <laughs> I saw it. And I think a lot of it is because I know the awfulness that's coming. And the first time through, you're just kind of, you're on this journey with her in a lot of ways. And you can give in her story and kind of what you think of Nick at the point of the movie of the twist, you're kind of like, yeah, that's really fucked up, but I can kind of understand where she's coming from. And then by the end of the movie, you're like, well, I kind of regret saying that I can understand where she's coming from. She's on a different level, but just kind of uh, like a performance that I did not see coming that year. Yeah, I would completely agree. She's phenomenal in the movie, but um, that's something that goes to every actor in the film. Um, yeah. For her, yeah, I was blown away by it. But like you said, I didn't have much of an impression prior. Right. It was just, oh my, my God, who is this person? Who is this force of nature? Which I think um, really but, helps, right? To have that kind of absolutely. actress that you don't have that past with. Yeah. Um, but then you have somebody like Ben Affleck showing up, who I think is honestly in this film um, – which is something he's done with his career several times, not unlike what he did with Hollywood land where he's kind of screwing with his public persona. Yes. Um, where he's playing with the idea of how people view him and how they see him. And because of that, I think it adds a level to this film that if it was somebody else, it might not have been as effective as it was. And mm -hmm. it's not that necessarily the role itself demands something of it that other actors wouldn't have been able to pull off, but because of how people perceive him, 
it made it just that much better. And Neil Patrick Harris, uh, you would never think of him in this creepy, creepy light that he's here. I mean, it's Patrick Fugit. You would never think about the kid from. Oh, that's um, right. You know, <laughs> every time I watch the movie, I'm like, "Who is that again?" And then I look it up, and I'm like, "Oh God!" <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. every time. Yeah, and and he's great here, and it's the whole. I think the whole cast, even Tyler Perry, who I honestly have very little opinion of because I don't know anything about his films other than he does the Medea movies. Right. Um, that was my that was my level of understanding of Tyler Perry going in, and I was blown away by him. He was yeah. actually the person that I walked away from this movie kind of like, wow. I was not expecting that because he's really enjoyable in this role. Like he's really he and granted, it's all very like kind of dark humor and really kind of Mm -hmm. fucked up things they're talking about. But he's genuinely funny in this movie, like the way he interacts with Nick and the way he understands the situation and what's going down like that kind of there's this whole scene about like, man, I'm sorry, but you got to have like a begrudging respect for her. Like at this point, like you married one smart lady. Like yeah. she knows exactly what she's doing, and I love on. And the second he showed up on screen, I was like, "Oh God, here we go, fucking Tyler Perry!" Like, when's he gonna, you know, put on a wig and a dress? Like, this is this is my only knowledge of him. And like within within fifteen seconds, I was like, I was so sold on his character. Like he, like just in the interview with the kind of Nancy Grace type character yes. on TV, I was like, I want to know more about this guy. Oh yeah. And it's, it's, but I didn't even know that was him. Um, Mm. I'm that unfamiliar with his work. This is really, I I think possibly the only film I've ever watched him in. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember seeing an interview with him at the time where he didn't know who David Fincher was really either. (laughs) Cause I mean, he has his own studio out in Atlanta where he's cranking out all these movies and kind of in this little insulated world where he's able to make all these films that do really well. And he's not really paying attention to mainstream Hollywood. And he said he would have been a hell of a lot more nervous if he would have actually went back and found out. <laughs> it's a blessing was. in disguise, man. Like when you don't know you're working with like someone who's perceived as kind of, you know, top of his game, it well, probably in, helps. <laughs> in his mind, he's doing a movie with Ben Affleck and Neil Patrick Harris. How serious do you need to take the movie? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a great point. And I think also um, Ben Affleck's performance, I mean, I think I, I like his performance the entire film, but rewatching it, I'm so much more impressed with the first half um, yeah. because I, I think, frankly, like I, I go back and forth on Ben Affleck performances. Like sometimes I really enjoy his performances. Sometimes I kind of roll my eyes, but he plays it so perfectly in this first half where I think when something terrible happens, we expect a certain reaction, whether it's, you know, a family member dies or in this case, his wife goes missing and might be dead. Like we expect certain reactions and but we can't even really put a finger on what that reaction is. But we know when something looks wrong. Mm -hmm. And I love that he plays it in such a way where as the audience, we don't know whether to believe him or not either. Right. Like in some of his conversations, like when he's talking to Amy's mom, you're kind of like, oh, you know, his heart's in the right place. Like, I, I, I get what he's going through. And then there's moments where he's, like, you know, taking selfies and, like, being very yeah. a- aware of, like, wait, you should delete that. Like, gets that kind of split second afterwards, like, empathy instead of feeling it in the moment. So you're – the way he plays it, you don't know whether to believe it or not, which is another kind of gutsy move from a direction and a screenwriting perspective that this movie doesn't have a protagonist. <laughs> like, it doesn't have somebody we're rooting for at all. Well, I don't know. There's that moment when um, you see Rosamund Pike and she's driving and you the first time I remember the idea of your, oh, my God, she's still alive. 
and she's put it, you see that, you know, she's kind of driving in the convertible and she's the one putting this all together. Yeah. And at that moment, I'm really pulling for her. Now, as, yes, agreed. as the movie goes along and I find out more information, I'm yeah, kind of, you know, a little less. <laughs> oh, oh, no, no, no. They, I think it's, um, it's Fincher kind of shaming me for pulling for this person at that point. And I'm rightfully so, you know, for the next right. 45 minutes or so, I pay for that thought. But, you know, that it, I, you don't, at least for me, I am absolutely on her side in that moment. Every time, too. It's just that, yep. you know, that kind of buildup of it is so wonderfully constructed in the first half of it. The, the mystery turn of it, that it's still enjoyable. And I think that's all performance right there. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, that's a largely due to the director because I think that Fincher is pulling in Affleck and he's doing the best, allowing him to do the best stuff that he can do. And he's working with all of his strengths. I think that he's not playing up the charming side. Um, but when he is playing that side that you see in movies, it's not played with sincerity. It's played as who is this douchebag? Right. It's kind of what you're thinking in those moments, which is, you know, kind of what you think when you watch some of his lesser movies that he's trying to get away with, you know, uh, good looks and a smile. And that's how right. he carries himself through some films. It feels like sometimes, but then in something like this, it just absolutely works. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that kind of brings us to the screenplay because one of the things I've written down is just a really simple note that just says the switch. And that's that moment you talk about when she's in the mm -hmm. car and it's, you know, we kind of talk about the idea of like, don't make a movie about a twist because like that, that wears thin really quickly and you can see it once and being impressed. And then it's like you mentioned diminishing returns and like, and, but because of the performances, as you mentioned, there are no diminishing returns. Every time I see that scene where she's driving in that convertible, you, you have this moment, one of like kind of shock, like, oh, oh shit. Oh yeah. She's alive. And also <laughs> like. Oh, and you, you are like actively rooting for her in that moment because she's in, in that moment before you know really how awful she is. I think the, the first moment I kind of realized like, oh, this is not someone I should be rooting for is when you see her calendar with everything <laughs> that she has planned out, including kill self question mark. Like you're like, uh oh, like we've got down like, like she's like, this is not just planned out. Like this is planned out to the second. You know, and it's and that moment to me is genuinely kind of terrifying when you see all the post-its on the on the calendar. But before that, you're like, yeah, she got away. This is great. Good for her. Like leave town, you know, start a new life. That's fantastic. But as the movie goes on and all these kind of dominoes fall in place of like everything that she has planned and all these people that she has involved, it gets more and more terrifying. And, and I think you're right. I think as an audience member, you do feel shamed for rooting for her. You're like, oh, this is. This is the person I've been I've been behind. Oh well, maybe well, I need to reconsider. Well, well, then at that point, who are you left with? You're left with Ben Affleck, right? And so that's where the switch happens, where it's more uncomfortable. And I think that's why that second half becomes a little bit. There's more resistance there because you're yes. starting to have to switch, and you're pulling for this guy. And then the switch happens again with the abuse, um, where yeah. the question mark because you're pretty much. I think at that point, you get to where you're squarely on his side. Yeah. Um, when you get to, as far as a screen, uh, writing device, when it gets to the point where all those things are in the shed in the backyard, yeah. you're just like, Jesus Christ, man. Right. It really at this level. And it's like, this guy can't catch a break. And this is, he's brilliantly allowing you to feel sympathy for this guy who is messing around on his wife with, as it's so eloquently put a child, yeah. um, Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. And, and his and former so, student. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Not just exactly. young, but oh God. Yeah. It's, 
And you bring up the abuse, and I think that's one of the most interesting things about the way the script plays itself out. Because I remember as I was watching the movie the first time, like the the first time you see her push, see him push her, you you believe her story, and then as the story goes on, you're like, well, I don't think I buy it anymore because she's lied about everything. But then you have a really important scene at the end of the film where he snaps and you know calls her a cunt and throws her against the wall, and then. And then the questions come up again, like, oh, wait, who? I don't know what I believe anymore. Like, and I still don't know because I've watched the movie three or four times. I still don't know if he ever if he ever hit her before or not. Like, of course, you believe that final moment because both are in the room at the same time. And that's the story you're telling. But like now I have all these other questions. But, you know, and it's also, you know, you just have that moment and it's so shocking um, that you didn't believe there was any abuse before. Everything else is a lie. This has all been lies. It's all been fabricated. But yeah, the way that he pushes her against that wall, you do think maybe this happened before. But if there was ever a woman des- that deserved to be pushed against a wall and called a cunt, I think it was her. <laughs> it's probably Amy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the other thing that's uncomfortable is that it puts you in that headspace and you're kind of like, like not rooting for it, but you're like, oh, I understand. Like, <laughs> I, I get why you did that. Like she has done some of the most awful things you can imagine. And tried to, I mean, originally she was trying to get him, you know, a jail for life, death penalty. Like she was literally yeah. trying to kill him without getting her hands dirty. So, you know, you could kind of get why, why he's in that, in that mindset for sure. But it throws in all these questions about how she was treated before. Yeah. And it's, um, it's that, that's the brilliant thing about this film. And I think that's why it works so well. Cause it's this constant back and forth. Um, between these two characters and the manipulation of the audience um, right. that were being played this whole time by Fincher. And he's just yep. this master conductor that's just moving us along through the story. And he'll never give us, you know, he pushes us in our direction and then slaps our wrist for following him. And right. it's just, it, and we love the abuse. Yeah. Speaking of that, that back and forth, the other moment that always gets me is the scene where uh, Nick is on TV giving his interview and she's at, at Neil Patrick Harris's house watching it. Mm-hmm. And there's a moment there in Rosamund Pike's performance where you think like she's softening and that, and that she's like hearing him. And then you realize later, like, no, this is just one more manipulation. Like she realizes <laughs> like, I don't have to kill myself. I can go back home. Everything's just fine. And I was like, and it gets me every time because like, there's something about like the way she's watching the TV and the way she's ignoring everything else in the room and everything on her kind of softens in that moment. So you're like, he's getting to her. And you're like, why am I such an idiot? Why do I think that, that he is getting to her? Nothing can get to her at this point, but it works for me every time. No, and you're absolutely right. It's that sort of she has this look of wonder where you yeah. think that it, you're feeling it, and you're and she's playing it so well, and it, she's so fucking good that you fall for it. And it's yep. no, no, of course not. This is this is just the lie that she's going to be able to tell now. Yep. She's going to be able to show up in open arms, and there's no way that he's going to be able to deny her at this point. It's yep. the he basically just opened the door and said, "Come home, sweetie." Yep. Yep. <laughs> Oh, the last thing I want to mention about the writing, we talked about earlier how, you know, this movie does something very different where it has this woman who's kind of always in control, even if she lets other people think they're in control. The other thing I think this movie does interesting with gender, and I assume this is the same way in the book, but I don't know. I feel like Nick's uh, twin sister plays a very stereotypical kind of male friend role in this, like says things that you don't usually see women say on screen about other women. Like I and I love that. I love that like you could you could recast this with a with a guy 
and it would work just as well. Like he could have a twin brother and these scenes would all work like and and I love that. I love that we get something a little different from her performance. Well, and I and I think that you're right. It's with even the relationship between the two detectives um, yeah. or the it, it's point. the same way where the um, the female detective is the one that's, you know, she's the smart one that's kind of seeing through this and kind of know she can smell something's wrong there. And the guy's yeah. the one that's just, you know, kind of really impressed with, you know, them as a couple and kind of the, he wants to buy in a little bit more, I think, and yeah. she has to guide him along. And so, yeah, every, in every situation, it's a woman that's controlling all yep. the relationships. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, it's, I don't think that that's necessarily a commentary by um, Fincher saying that these women are manipulative or anything like that, um, or in general, that women are not to be trusted. I really think that he's just saying, you know, that it's just, let's make a smart thriller and allow females to be in control of it. Maybe it's because the book was written by a woman. Yeah. Yeah. And the screenplay was also written by, by the author. So okay. that probably helps too. Um, so what did you think of the production value of this movie? I mean, other than like, we've talked about how beautiful it looks in general, but is there anything that stood out good or bad to you? Not bad. Um, but I think that's one of those, it's really hard to point out negatives in production design or look when you're talking about a Fincher movie, his movies always look amazing. They always look great. So it's, there's, I don't know. It's, it's really, really difficult for me to think of anything in the movie that's, you know, a negative. So, um, yeah, as far as the, it's, everything is so the choice of the house that they use for it is so ideal. It's perfect. Yeah, of course it's a place you want to live that you have this dream of and everything is this fantasy. Um, the, unless you're a New Yorker, unless you, unless you're Amy. (laughs) Well, no, that's the, that's the beautiful thing about it is the, the way that they, it, for all of us, when we look at it, we see it and we see this idyllic life and we see this world that we would all want, that anybody in their right mind would want. But of course, we're dealing with a woman who's absolutely not in her right mind, um, who wants nothing to do with this life, that this yep. is this is a purgatory for her. This is some sort of punishment that she's having to pay for to be in this um, existence. And to be perfectly honest, there's parts of it where I completely understand. Um, yeah. When he has sex with her and mentions going to get a blooming onion at the outback. Or oh whatever. God, how romantic. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm with her. <laughs> yep. Yep. I get it. This, this is a guy who's giving up. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so that, that idea of that contradiction of playing up this life and making it so beautiful, but making it so disgusting at the same time and so unsatisfying is that's tough to pull off and he does a great job here and i think that's one of the many elements that separates this from a lifetime movie yes um that it doesn't lead us in that way that um most films they would show that i I think the closest thing it does to that is that when ben affleck moves in with his sister there's a desperation there and you can see that his life is definitely for the down, it's on the downturn at this point that he yes. is losing a lot by not being with her, by being in the situation that he's being forced into. And he's having everything that he could possibly want taken away from him. And he's starting to realize how good he had it. And I think they make her house a little bit more, you know, and it's, maybe it's just by the comparison of it. It's not that her house is dirty or gross or anything like that. It's just, it's just not idyllic. Yeah. It's just like most people live. Right, right. It's just like normal life. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing I love as far as production value, the only other thing we kind of haven't mentioned in uh, in kind of prior discussions is actually the music in this movie. I love that it 
there's like you have that idyllic opening you have that house but even when he's just kind of standing outside on his way to the bar and on his way back there's this really ominous score going on the whole time so you don't even get that moment that you would get in a kind of stereotypical lifetime type story where you're like isn't everything great here look at this nice little sleepy town look at this beautiful house like you get that but it's underscored by all this kind of terrifying kind of piano based you know really ominous scoring and i love that from the beginning again um you know i'm not sure i don't know uh but i but i love the fact that it doesn't it doesn't let you get comfortable even in the beginning of the film where you should be comfortable. Yeah. There's always a underbelly of uh, something that's wrong. Everything about the movie, like it, it's, it's always working on uh, multiple levels where it, and yes, it is Trent Reznor. I look it, it is. Up. Yeah. Um, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Yeah. Yeah. They've been doing it. I think since the social network, it's, yeah. this is, his if it, go-to if it ain't guy. broke, I mean, like. no, no, it, it, it's definitely working. And I'm actually really, and maybe that's just me underselling, Trent Reznor as a musician, but um, I was I was very surprised when I saw that he was doing scores. Um, yeah, I didn't and, know he had that kind of level of nuance to his work. Let's say. no, like, his music is very much uh, I want to fuck you like an animal. Yeah, it's, it's so, raw. It's, it's in your face. It's blunt. <laughs> but then again, I guess he did write that Johnny Cash song "Hurt." That, that was originally a Nine Inch Nails song. Yeah, so that's there's true. more depth in there than you know maybe the hits let us know. Yep. But um, so he does a remarkable job. And I think that's everything in this movie on every level. There's always, it's working against itself where you'll have a beautiful image, but you'll have this music underneath that just keeps you uncomfortable. Um, or at least for a moment, it'll allow you to be comfortable and then it pulls it out from under you. And so yep. it's always working against itself, but it's, and that's what propels you forward. That's what keeps you engaged. I think, and it has to work that way for a movie like this to really be as powerful as this is that it has to, you know, kind of be contradicting itself at all times because you have to be left uncomfortable while you're watching right. it. And I think that's actually that contradiction is the perfect description of both of our main characters too. Mm-hmm. So it it all kind of fits together. Um so let's talk about our favorite scenes. So the first one that comes to mind for me is that that flirtation at the party when they first meet, like I think everything about that scene works. Like, yes, it's very, very scripted. And like, just like that sugar scene that we talked about is probably like, I don't think any first meeting has ever gone this smoothly. (laughs) But when you look back at the first meeting with the person you fall in love with and the person you marry, you think of it in these very, you know, these very pretty terms and everything about this works. Like I find both of these characters so utterly charming in the scene, like everything up to the, like the villainous chin where he like, will cover his chin to let her know like look i'm telling you the truth you can Uh, trust me now which becomes like this very insidious thing as they move forward in their relationship oh god yeah um but how did you charm your wife what's the story that you tell yourself and what's the reality of it Hmm, that's that's a really good question that uh we can talk about off air (laughs) (laughs) fair enough Yeah, but I think everyone has that story, right? And when you, when you, and and whether it's about the time you first met or, you know, when you got engaged, like everybody's got like a very pretty story. And, and it, it's not as if the truth is ugly, but it's certainly not as, you know, not as pretty as we make it out to be. Um, I fired my wife. So, no. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's holy um, shit. (laughs) Yeah. Before, before we were together, but how romantic. We worked together and I fired her. There you go. (laughs) Oh. So I, I think that we have a healthy dose of reality yeah. built into our relationship. Hard to avoid, for sure. 
<laughs> All right. Uh, any favorite scenes that we haven't mentioned uh, that you wanted to talk about? Um, you know, let me. And nothing that comes on right away. It's um, there. There is a couple moments. There are a few moments here that, when I think back on it, there's that. I guess it's in the you know last half of the film where you're kind of going to the more of the uncovering of it. How is she going to get back into the house? How is she going to rebuild this? How is she going to have this level of abuse? And when she goes down into the, I guess, into where the homeless people are in that part of it, Mm. it's not my favorite part of the film necessarily, but it's such a brief moment. It's, it passes, but that sort of aspect of the mystery is not that interesting. It's, I want them to be back in the house. Right. Anytime it gets away from that, it's always the domestic moments, whether it's, her playing house with, you know, Doogie Hauser, or when it's her with, you know, uh, Ben Affleck, that's, those are the moments where I think it's really at its heart. Or even when she's in the trailer park, it's those, when it's sort of this, I don't know, almost a stage play when it's just yeah. these different characters interacting with each other, it's each other. That's when I think it's working the best. Yeah. I think there's only two other moments that I wanted to mention. One is uh, Nick's performance at the vigil, uh, which I thought, like we kind of talked about how you're, oh, you're yeah. not sure whether to believe him or not, especially the fact that his his girlfriend is in the front row, like telling him how much she hates him because he's, you know, <laughs> played the part and said, I love my wife. Please bring my wife home, yeah. which which at some level you're kind of like, well, what did you expect him to say? Like, <laughs> yeah. did you expect him to just like be like, well, well, she's gone now. Thank goodness. I'm going to go off with my 19 year old or my 22 year old girlfriend. Like, let's move on with my life. That's not really how life works. Uh, and the other, the other moment is Amy using the cameras at Neil Patrick Harris's house. Like, I just oh, thought it's, yeah. it's, yeah. I mean, we talked about how great Rosamund Pike is in this movie and she's great in just about every scene, but she owns that scene and it's just her. There's yeah. nothing for her to play off of. And the way that the script has her use where the cameras are in the house and what she's kind of role playing in that moment is utterly fantastic. Oh, it's wonderful. It's such like you can you're just looking at her going, oh, God, there's no end to what yeah, this woman will do. There's nothing she it's won't do. Yeah. So terrible and so disturbing and still so compelling. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, as far as following somebody through their story and that that is one of those moments where I'm it, it's kind of the. The, the, those moments when you kind of see how the serial killer pulled it off, how he got away with the murder, how everything right. came together. And when you're seeing that scene, you're like, Jesus Christ, man, <laughs> it's, she's creating a rape and this, and uh, yeah, yeah, of course she's, she's going to get away with this. Yep. yep. Absolutely. She was held hostage by the creep. Yep. Wow. This is absolutely going to work. Yep. And it, it's that, I don't know how much of that was in the book because I didn't read it, but it's really, it's performed beautifully executed perfectly and written and it's just this is i can't say it enough times it's just something that's firing on every level possible yeah absolutely so this is before we jump into the theme like this is one of this one of those movies of the past four or five years that i will recommend to everybody like i just think it's phenomenal and i'm like forget everything you've heard about it just go watch it like go in as blind as you can if you haven't seen it yet who hasn't seen it there are people who I know refuse to see it. Like they kind of heard what it was about and they're like, nope, that doesn't sound like it's for me. I'm going to skip that one. And I'm like, no, it's Fincher. Don't skip it. Like, even <laughs> if it's, even if it's something that you feel like I'm, I have no interest in the curious case of fucking Benjamin Button, but I goddamn saw that because David Fincher directed it. And there's some really great things in that movie. Like, oh. is it, is it my favorite Fincher movie? Absolutely not. 
but there's it's it's better than most other directors best like it's fantastic so you know he's one of those there's very few directors like that at this point for me who i just feel like well they haven't they haven't steered me wrong in anything they've done yet so they have my trust and he's definitely one of those directors and i was very very rewarded for that trust in this movie are there any other directors like that or actors at this point that you will just blindly follow whatever they're doing yeah, there's a couple. I mean, I think, you know, I feel like I've, you know, I, I have a couple friends who like will shit on Christopher Nolan. Um, but for me, <laughs> like he hasn't made a bad movie. Like, I don't think he's made a bad film. So I'm going to so I'll, I will be there opening day for Dunkirk when that comes out. Like I am like I like the third Batman movie. I liked Interstellar. And I know that there were a lot of people that didn't. Um, it certainly got its fair share of negative reviews, but he's one of those directors also who I will go see. Um, as far as actors, it's, I mean, right now, like Fassbender is at that level where I'll see anything he does. And that kind of started with seeing shame. Uh, and then on a lighter note, like, even though he has made his fair share of fucking terrible movies, I will watch Kevin Klein in anything because I am just endlessly charmed by that guy. Yeah, Even fucking Wild Hogs. I saw that fucking movie and it was terrible. But it's not a good movie. No, no. He's really charming. But yeah. um, Wild Hogs is that's something I never need to see. Fucking garbage. Yeah, it's terrible. But, I've watched like 20 minutes of it. I was good. Yeah, you're good. Um, what about yeah. you? Are there any for you that like you will just go out of your way to see? Um, it's interesting that you bring up Nolan um, because he's one of those guys that I think he's a diminishing returns director hmm. um, where it's it's. When you, he reminds me of Tarantino in a way, um, where he he started out so strong. Um, then your you know your second movie is Pulp Fiction. Uh, <laughs> your second movie is Memento. Yeah, Memento is probably still my favorite Nolan movie. Like I think it's his best work. And then after that, you decide to go out and make a bunch of Batman movies. Now, granted, you you made some incredibly strong Batman movies that were a lot of fun, but they're still. Batman movies. Yeah. Um, the second one is really something that rises above the material and becomes like this great seventies crime. Thriller yeah. Way. And I think it's absolutely brilliant. But at the end of the day, it's kind of, I, I don't know. It's, well, it gets to it, that level where it's, it's, it's great for a Batman movie. Sure. You know, so you have that qualifier. It, as long as I'm not, it's like when I'm watching death proof and I'm going, that's a lot of fun. That movie is right. fun as hell, but this is from the guy who did Pulp Fiction. Right. You should hold yourself to a higher standard. Right. You made, you made Inglorious Bastards. What, what are you doing, man? Right. And and he's just having fun. And I think it's – with Tarantino, I can see joy in his filmmaking. With Nolan, I don't see a lot of joy there. It seems like he's almost annoyed that he's making movies. Yeah, he's, he seems very like scientific in the way he <laughs> makes films. Like, all right, I got to do this now. Like clinically kind of puts these things together. And I could see the diminishing returns. I think I think it's it's easy to be like, well, you made this before, so you should hold yourself to a higher standard. And I think I think Fincher is one of those people who seems to hold himself to a really high standard. And there's yeah. you know, like he's made some like to me, Zodiac is a top twenty movie of all time. I'll like agree. not just of, of that year, but just, you know, up with Hitchcock, up with, you know, movies like like Alien, one of my favorite movies of all time. It's up there with that. So when you when you throw in that kind of level of craftsmanship and work, like you've got a lot to live up to. But I feel like and I'm not saying Gone Girl is a better movie than Zodiac. It's certainly not. But there's not that level of like, oh, well, you're just having fun. You're just kind of doing what you want here. You're really putting in work here. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I and it's not to say that somebody like Nolan isn't making really 
well-crafted films. They're incredibly well-made. And that's what's so frustrating about it. It's mm. there's certain people that work at such a high level and you see the material they're working with, right. um, which there's just, there's a difference though. When somebody like Fincher does Gone Girl and you could easily, if this would have gone wrong, you would have said, God, it's so beneath you. Why are you making something like this? Just doesn't make sense. It's a risk for sure to make this movie. Yeah. But it's something that, that, that he pulled off. There was something in the material that he saw, whatever it was that attracted it. Maybe it was just a paycheck. Who knows? Um, that he needed to get one that he thought was going to hit because it had been cu- a couple since when it really worked for him. Um, I-, I have no idea what the politics or the mechanics are, but I don't give a shit. This movie's great. I had a f- great time with it. Um, yeah. But as far-, far as directors that I follow now, um, and it's one that people could easily shit on a hell of a lot more than they could shit on Christopher Nolan, it's probably Eli Roth. There's a guy that I will watch mm. anything he does. And I-, I think he makes incredibly smart genre films. Um, they're very quickly dismissed that I think he's yeah. working at a much higher level than people appreciate necessarily. Um, that yes, he's doing, he works mainly in horror. He's starting to, I knew I couldn't get out. an episode through an episode with you without talking about horror movies. I knew of course. we would uh, get there eventually. <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a big horror movie guy, but yeah. that, that's, and, or even somebody like Rob Zombie with Lords of Salem. I think that he was working in a almost Kubrick level, quality of filmmaking with that movie and it's just something that people dismiss because it's a horror film and they don't really pay attention to some of the artistry and the brilliance that's there um and though there's people that are doing stuff like that that goes unnoticed that almost makes me pull for them a little bit more sure um when i see people working at that level and it's going vod um that they're getting big stars to show up in their movies and they still can't get it pushed out um and pulling for somebody like a nolan for me it's like pulling for the bully at that point. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm glad that he's still doing original work and that he's able to do something like Interstellar. That he's there's somebody out there still making you know a thoughtful space film. You know yeah. that's something that's trying to speak about the bigger things in humanity um, and using science fiction as sort of just the the catalyst for that. You know, but that's not what the movie's really about. I, I think that's fantastic, and I'm glad that there's somebody at a studio willing to give him tons of money to do that. It's right. fantastic, but it's just, it's too cold for me, I guess. Yeah, no, I can totally see that. All right. Uh, so I'm about to ask maybe the most obvious question I've ever asked uh, in, you know, 170 something episodes, Chris, how do you think manipulation uh, factors into this movie? <laughs> <laughs> like, is this a stretch? Like, <laughs> does, does, does this movie work without manipulation? No. Isn't this, um, <laughs> It, it, it's, I mean, you could call this movie gone manipulating m- manipulated girl yeah. or whatever. I mean, it's that, that is the movie The the yeah. title itself is a manipulation. <laughs> She's, yeah. She, she ain't gone. She's not gone. Yeah. I think that's what I love most about this theme is that you could look at it like, yes, Amy is a manipulator. She's a master manipulator. And one of the things I love most about this movie is she's not just a manipulator who plans everything in advance, which she does, but she's able to she's able to turn on a dime and change her plan if she needs to. If she gets mm-hmm. robbed of all her money or if she realizes I can go home again, she can switch everything up and still make it work for herself. Like she is a master manipulator. And Nick is a manipulator too. Like everyone in this movie is. And but I think the biggest manipulator in this movie is David Fincher. Like, I, I think yes, he is, I mean, he puts Amy to shame at the way he manipulates the audience and making them feel certain ways and then making them switch and feel bad about how they felt 10 minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that you're absolutely right. And uh, I, I think it's often undersold how much of a mani- manipulator um, Nick's character is here. Yeah. 
um, that he, that that's what she's attracted to in him. She's, she's attracted to this idea that he can bend people's thoughts on her that by when she's this ice cold woman that nobody really feels approached to, but when he's with her in the room, um, he deflates that he's charming. He's fun to be around. And he sees this lightness inside of her and by association, she becomes lighter and she becomes more approachable and more, you know, fun to be around. And she's more charming in the, in those times. And so she's using him in the same way that he's using her um, as the extension of who they become by being with the other person. And they're both manipulating one another and they're both getting that from each other. But you're right. It's absolutely David Fincher. That's the one that's pulling the strings here in the end. So, and he plays us the whole time. And I love, I love being played with by Fincher. Right. There's, there's the quote of the year right there. I I, I was working towards that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it. I appreciate you making my job that much easier. (laughs) Yeah, no, but I, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think, I think because Amy is probably like the closest thing to a, to a true psychopath we'll see on screen. Like she's, she kind of ticks all those boxes for sure. And I think, like you said, I think Nick does get undersold. And I think the reason why is not only because of all the terrible things she does, but because although he is a master manipulator, she knows him so well, she knows exactly what he's going to do. So she's able to turn that on its head. There's a moment where she's watching the news report. Like she goes, I think to a library and is watching the news report of him like when she's first gone missing and she's like go ahead where's that smile i know it's coming and then of course it comes like she knows him so well she knows every intricacy of his personality and i you know it's 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 the one thing he can't fight is how well she knows him and knows exactly what he's going to do and he even has a line about it i think in the movie when he's talking to his sister about how well she played him and there is this kind of begrudging respect almost like even even his sister at some point is kind of like shaking her head like, wow, I'm a, like, well done in a way, like not even <laughs> not I don't I didn't want this to happen, but I can't imagine playing someone that well. Oh, no, I, I can barely keep track of the podcast that I'm supposed to do in a week. <laughs> right. I, I couldn't do this shit. Of course not. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I mean, I think we've talked about a lot during, during the episode and there's, you know, you could talk about manipulation in this movie for hours. Cause like you said, that's the whole thing, but I feel like we've covered that enough. Yes. So, and you know, if you've listened to this and yeah, there's a big twist in the movie. Uh, but if you haven't seen it and you're getting to this point, I don't know how you got to this point, but if you are, just go watch it. Like it's, it's an incredible <laughs> film. Like one of, I, and I think in a lot of ways, because of the, the subject matter, I think it got, it, it, it didn't get taken as seriously maybe as far as like you know this is a top movie of that year because of that kind of lifetime movie subject matter but it's certainly worth a watch at least one if not two watches oh yeah um and that's one of the things that it's i don't know about you it's it's something that people will use to defend their taste in movies when the movies that they love happen to win some awards that year yeah but generally speaking when i go through my you know, mountain of Blu-rays and I'm looking through, um, it's not many of them are Oscar winners. The ones that I pull out all the time that I would call my favorites. So awards don't mean anything. It's just, that's what was hitting with people that year for a certain select group of people. Um, and I don't think that anybody denies Fincher's talent that he's immensely gifted director, but yeah, this is the type of movie that doesn't get awards because it is a lifetime movie. Yeah. Uh, 
I, I can't think of a movie like this that has won awards. Can you? That oh, was God, this no. trashy and pulpy? No, I mean – I think I think you brought up something earlier that was a really good point. This idea, this is the type of movie um, that in 30 or 40 years, when people look back on it, they're going to be a lot more impressed with it than they were when it first came out. You know, yeah. you talked about kind of comparing it to Hitchcock, where his movies were, were very pulpy. And like even movies that you couldn't get a movie more highly thought of than something like Vertigo now like this is on you know the top of many people's lists of ever and mm-hmm. you look back at how critics viewed it when it came out and they were kind of unimpressed like man it's not that great it's not his best work you know it's kind of kind of ridiculous kind of over the top it doesn't make sense and you get some of that same reaction to a movie like gone girl so i think as we get further away from 2014 i think people are going to appreciate it more well i think it's we're going through that right now if you look at something like stranger things and the way that's mm-hmm. hitting and people sure. are just absolutely floored by that. And you have these two kids that were raised, you know, with a bunch of VHS tapes of these 80s movies. And those were right. the ones that they love. And so now people are looking at John Carpenter with this level of reverence that has, hasn't been there my entire life. Because, right. um, I mean, I, I was one of those kids that went to see Big Trouble in Little China opening yep. weekend. And when the film broke and we had to wait 45 minutes for them to get the other print from the <laughs> other theater over so that we could watch it, I sat there waiting like, Okay. For it. Yeah. I'll wait because there was something amazing that I was watching that I knew I would never see from anybody else. When I saw they live in the theater, I knew that that was something that was just really fun. Um, and now I think there's a possibility that people that are my age, you know, people in their thirties and forties that are starting to make films. And when they're being interviewed and talked about, they're starting to talk about the things that they love. Um, and so there's some kid with a Blu-ray right now, some, you know, 12 year old that saw gone girl for the first time. And this with is terrible be, parents <laughs> with, with wonderful understanding parents that, <laughs> that know about romance. Is that- absolutely. <laughs> they appreciate the finer things in life that left it around. I mean, I, I'm an irresponsible parent. I have stacks of movies that I, my kids should get absolutely nowhere near, but they're not on, behind lock and key. Right. You know, at some point, if they have interest, they'll be able to go grab them when I'm not around and watch all kinds of terrible, nasty things. So I think that's like a rite of passage, though. I think yeah. like, I mean, every kid watched something he wasn't he or she wasn't supposed to when they were like 10 years old. And, yeah. you know, either it scared the hell out of them and they never did it again. Or they were like, wow, this is like this is a whole new thing that I didn't even know existed. And I want more. There's going to be some parents that they own, you know, 10 or 15 movies and one of them happens to be this one. And so some kid's going to discover this movie and it's going to and 20, 30 years from now, like you were saying, there's going to be somebody that's making an amazing film that everyone's saying, what was your inspiration? What's your favorite? And it'll be like when Martin Scorsese was just constantly touting um, Vertigo. Right. And that got a lot of people to start rewatching this movie and going back and looking at it when all these critics started coming around to it. This, you know, two, three generations later, they start looking back at these. And yeah, I think this could be one of those ones that will rise above. And if not, I think Fincher's work will. Um, yeah. Has, has he won, did he win an Oscar at this point? Has he won an Oscar? I don't think he has. I was actually thinking of that as you were as you were talking about this not being a movie that gets awards publicity. And I, I'm trying to remember if he – I think did Benjamin Buttons get nominated for stuff? I think I Benjamin Button got nominated for everything. Okay. <laughs> like I think it was one of those um, – he got nominated for um, The Social Network and nominated for Benjamin Button, but he did not win either one. Okay. He's won a Golden it, Globe. That's about it. So Yeah. yeah. I, I, it's I, – I think that you know there are some you, – you, oh, you know what? Uh, there's a question before. Somebody that I will blindly go into anything that they do. Yeah. There, 
Paul Thomas Anderson. Oh there yeah. Yeah. I, I will see everything he does. Yep. Just and thinking be about, cause I think he beat, um, it, was it, there will be blood. Did that beat Benjamin button? Is that the same year? That, that might be right. Cause that was, yeah. Cause that was, uh, I have was, a vision in my mind of them both like being nominated against each other and be like, well, fuck. Yeah. I, I mean, I, talk okay. about a bloodbath. Like that's like, like <laughs> I, I'm, I'm great with either one of these guys winning. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. Uh, so the last thing to talk about is the movie we're pairing this with, which is The Girl on the Train. Uh, so I assume you've seen trailers and know something about this. So are you looking forward to The Girl on the uh, Train? Uh, I'm going to go see it. Um, that my wasn't wife, my question. <laughs> my, my wife really loved the book. Um, okay. She had a good time with it. She kind of gave me the breakdown of it. And it sounds like it. I don't – Who do you know who directed it, who's making this one? Um, I'm not actually sure. Let me find out for you. Because I, I know it's not Fincher, but if you look at the way that they're – the font of the movie and the title treatment, they feel yeah. like they're trying to ride that wave a little bit. And that makes me nervous. Oh, this is uh, not great. So it's directed by Tate Taylor, who is best who's known that? for directing The Help and Get On Up. So – yeah. So you know what though? Sometimes there, there's. I, I don't want to beat something up because of past work because you never right. know. You never there, no, That's there, very true. There's sometimes that people show, and there's a lot of people that loved the help. My my mom being one of them. <laughs> um, I never saw it, so I can't really judge it. But it's something that didn't look like it would be very appealing to me. Um, so yeah, I will I will be seeing that one, but God only knows what that will turn out to be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think that's that's probably like I told you when I first you know, saw the trailer, the first thing I thought of was Gone Girl. Like, you have three things. One, it looks Fincher-esque, as you mentioned. It's based on a pulpy novel, um, and it seems to be about, you know, a a female narrator who we're not sure if we can trust. Mm-hmm. So all those things kind of came together to make me think of this. And I, I will watch this uh, because I love Emily Blunt in just about everything, like even in movies that aren't so great. I think she's kind of a wonderful screen presence. And it also stars uh, Rebecca Ferguson, who, uh, of course, was in the Mission Impossible uh, movie in the in the last year or so, which I really, really like. So I'd, oh, I like is, that, she, is that one good? I haven't seen it. Oh, it's great. It's fantastic. Okay. Yeah, it was actually like, I think, in my in my top 10 for that year of all movies like it is. Really? Yes. Did you see 12 movies that year? I saw way more than 12 movies that year, <laughs> somewhere around a hundred that year. So it's, Jesus, it's in the top that, 10%. Yeah. It's, that good? it's really good. It's, right. it's as good. I think it's as good as an, as an action movie can be as far as like that high quality. And it's because of her performance. It's not fucking Tom Cruise. It's you're, about you're Rebecca the, Ferguson. You're not the first person I've heard say that in yeah. like the last two weeks. I've heard one other person say that, which is very strange because I didn't hear anything about the movie at the time. And now, yeah, it's uh, excellent. Maybe it's just because that movie's coming out, but I've heard her name being thrown around. So. Yeah, it's got. It's also got like there's a scene that definitely is. It's got a lot of Hitchcock vibes to it. Like you can tell they were, uh, they were very influenced by Hitchcock in a certain scene in that. Movie, M- more so. so than the first one, because yes, you know Brian more. De Palma was at the helm of that first one. If there's anybody that's been a Hitchcock fanboy, it's that guy. More so, I will say more so. You should check <laughs> it out for sure. All right, fair enough. Make it happen. All right. Uh, so yeah, so I like. I I feel like. Um, I'm looking forward to it, but I'm fully aware that it could be something that, unlike Gone Girl, doesn't transcend its material. Mm. Yeah, so, probably. You know, but you know, it's Emily Blunt, so I'm I'm there for Emily Blunt. You know, opening day. For sure. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Uh, so thank you again for joining me on the show. You want to? Um, you've actually been uh doing a podcast recently, like I have more. Been. Of, so why don't you tell people about the podcast and where they can hear it? 
Uh, it is the Following Films podcast. You can find it by searching on iTunes for Following Films. Um, you can also go to followingfilms.com or you can find me on Twitter, following underscore films. Alright everybody, thank you for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. So, if you haven't got a chance to, you should check out followingfilms.com, which has a lot of other great movie podcasts, some of which you heard promos for here on the show, and you should definitely check those out. If you want to connect more with me, you can go to pretty much any social media out there, and I'll be there under Pop Culture Case Study or PC Case Study. The best place is Twitter, which is at PC Case Study. But if you want to go the extra mile and support the show, go to patreon.com slash popculturecasestudy, and there you can donate to the show on a per-episode basis and even get some great rewards for donating. So next time you hear me, we'll be trying to do a new release review of The Girl on the Train with Mike, so stay tuned for that. Until next time, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. So this week, uh, for the release of The Woman on the Train, uh, or is it, is that the name of it? Girl? It's a girl, girl, girl on a train? Okay. I think it's a girl on a train. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I think you're right, actually. It's for the first time I didn't say stranger on the train, which is <laughs> what I, how I usually fuck it up. So I, I like that I'm making new mistakes. That's good. All right. Something I will sleep. if I, That's my passion in life. You know, fuck movies. I just want to sleep. Yeah, no, that's that's a solid passion. I'm, I'm not <laughs> not mad at that. There, there's, I, I only allocate a certain number of hours per week that I'll do to this hobby that it's reasonable. Um, you mean so, kids? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah it, that's just a distraction from my real passion. <laughs> <laughs>